You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. On today's episode, we have Anna Councilman, who's the co-founder at Upstart, a public company on the NASDAQ, UPST is the ticker symbol, a leading AI lending marketplace that partners with banks to improve access to affordable credit. Upstart helps millions of consumers who don't have access to credit or take on the credit they can't ultimately afford. Anna leads business operations where she drives focus on operational scalability, employee experience, and culture strategy alignment. Prior to Upstart, Anna led Gmail consumer operations as the business grew from 150 million to 450 million users and launched the Global Enterprise Customer Programs team. Anna received a White House Champion of Change Award and was recognized as one of Silicon Valley Business Journal's 40 Under 40. Anna graduated summa cum laude from Boston University with a BA in Finance and Entrepreneurship. On the show, we talk about a lot of great things, including the best advice she got from mentors, how to scale yourself as a founder, changes in culture and operations when you run a public company versus startup, but how do you keep running at the same speed just as fast as a startup as you're a larger company? And how do you stay together as a co-founding team for the long term? Plus a lot, lot more. I think you'll enjoy it. So please stay tuned. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's jump right in. I'm curious, in your experience, what have you had to change in running the company after you took it public? In some ways, Upstart, because we partner with banks, we've already had a lot of reporting, auditing, sort of regulatory requirements. So from that side of the house, we didn't have maybe as much work to do as some other companies that have to sort of grow up in order to start operating in a public way. But the biggest shift for us has been we've always operated very transparently as a company. It was one of the lessons I learned at Google is the way you keep people really connected to what you're doing is by really sharing you know, the good, bad, and the ugly things that are going on in the company. And of course, as a public company, you're a bit more limited in what you can do. So up until we we went public, we would literally do monthly report outs with our entire team on basically all the slides that went to our board, including all the metrics, everything that was going well and not well in the business, followed by a Q&A, really, you know, aired on the side of complete, complete transparency. And of course, you know, the, as a public company, you can't quite do that. And of course, as a 2000 person company, you also, you know, can't quite do that. So we've had to make some shifts and adjustments, but we've just kind of figured out how to you keep that level of transparency, maybe not on the same cadence. So, you know, now we do, you know, after every earnings call, we do an all company, all hands. And, you know, during an open trading window, we get a chance to discuss things openly. We still do our weekly, you know, TGIFs and ask me anything sessions, but, you know, we don't have screens all over our office showing exactly what the origination numbers are and, you know, things things that we can't do. So it's been a bit of a challenge trying to maintain that culture of transparency with some more restrictions. But that's that, I would say, is one of the biggest changes. I don't think as a, as a company, we've always had this very long-term perspective as a business. So we don't 
spend a ton of energy worrying about, you know, how the market is going to react to point, you know, ABC or what we're doing. We, we kind of figure out what is the right thing to do for the business and then go do that. So I think the biggest change has been really around this transparency component. And as you've scaled, you mentioned part of the change is growing the number of team members. How have you had to manage differently? One of the things we've thought hard about is how do you continue to operate at the speed of a startup as a really big company? So when we started off um, as a company, we had kind of one product, kind of very limited set of bank partners, one leadership team, and we could really focus, you know, everyone was kind of involved in everything that we were doing. And as we've scaled, the level of complexity in the business really expanded exponentially. And so we have a lot more bank partners, a lot more products. So actually, as we were coming out of COVID and we we started to think about a digital first strategy, we started to think about what do we need to do differently to operate at this scale and this level of complexity at the speed of a startup. So what we decided to do is basically break up the company into 10 different vertical teams. And some of these are product oriented and some of them are actually sort of problem oriented, like machine learning advantage is a, a cross-functional team that focuses on making sure machine learning and AI improve every aspect of our business, but it's not a product in and of itself. And then we empowered each of those vertical teams to have basically mini leadership teams within their own vertical. And then those teams kind of operate almost independently. Obviously we provide a lot of oversight, but they have a fully formed leadership team. So they have a GM type person, a product person, engineering person, compliance, legal, et cetera. They have control over their resources. They kind of decide on their roadmap and, and the cadence of what they'll do. And then we now operate in a digital first environment, but these teams get together in person for a regular cadence of onsite. And so it basically is a little bit like having many startups with an upstart that allow them to continue to operate at fast speed. If you're ending up making more progress in the end, that sounds amazing, wonderful. You mentioned that you're digital first, but mm -hmm. not digital only or fully remote. What would be missing aside from the camaraderie of getting together face-to-face -face if you were digitally only? It maybe helps to provide some history on Upstart, but historically, we've been an extremely hardcore in-person, same office, everyone around the same table. Even when we had to like shift floors, it was it gave us a lot of consternation because we do really believe in the serendipity of the hallway conversations. One of our kind of most important company values is making every second count and the difference between problem solving of being able to walk over to someone's desk and ask them a question or stand in front of a whiteboard is, you know, substantial to, to operating in a remote and, you know, separated environment. So from my perspective, it's not just the camaraderie, it's the serendipitous conversations, it's the problem solving. It is I don't know if I would describe it as camaraderie, but there's this, you know, trust building that happens and relationship building that happens so that when you have to solve a problem with someone, it does really help to know, you know, who they are and have a little bit of that connective tissue. So I think we were trying to solve for all those things in the, in the digital first strategy and, and our sort of impression too, in having run the company with in this cadence in the last uh, year and a half or so is that people do get a lot of energy from getting together in person that ultimately, you know, you need to do what's 
interesting and attractive to top talent. And what we know is like top talent will have a choice. So I don't really, you know, I, I, I don't really see a world where companies can demand where all companies can demand for people to be in office five days a week. I don't think that's realistic, but I don't know that people there's, you know, that top talent really wants to just be completely remote, you know, working in front of their computer all the time. So we were trying to really solve for the best of both worlds. So what we do is we have teams get together on like a regular cadence. They get together in cross-functional teams so that there's, they're not just getting together to, you know, hang out or do, you know, trust falls and relationship building. They're actually getting together to plan, to problem solve, et cetera. And I think that's, that continues to be really valuable and, and has been working really well for us. Well, thank you for that. If I could shift gears a little bit, I'm curious how you manage regulatory risk. I think consumer lending as being a area regulators scrutinize a lot. And I know that it's an important element for you. So what investments have you made and, and how do you manage things differently than other people? Basically, as a company that deals with a lot of bank partners, banks are obviously very heavily regulated and something that, and you know, we anticipated that getting into the space was going to, you know, create regulatory challenges, particularly when you use a new technology like AI. So one of the things that we did that's, I think somewhat unique is very early in Upstart's history, literally before we even had a product, we went to some conference and marched up to the CFPB and we're like, okay, here's what we're trying to build and what do you think and how can we partner on this? And um, I think most companies try to build things in stealth mode, but we were really transparent about what we were trying to do and really partnered with them on kind of figuring out how to how to do things right. And that led to us being the first recipient of the no action letter and really partnering with them on how to think about, you know, fair lending in the context of a machine learning model. So I think the first thing I would say is we've been really transparent and collaborative from kind of day one of Upstart as we build our technology. And I think that's helped us a lot. And then the second piece is because we're a technology company first, we manage a lot of our regulatory risk through a lot of automation and tools and systems. So, you know, where a bank might have credit analysts who are all reviewing applications, and then you need to review you know, the quality of those decisions and you have to, you know, really manage a lot of, a lot of people risk that way um, versus for us, we have a ton of auto automation in the process. So you can sort of manage risk at scale and you can report out at scale and you can monitor your models at that sort of system level. And that allows us to bring down the cost of lending because we're able to bring down the regulatory costs of, of sort of monitoring and staying compliant. And then of course, you know, we do all the, all the things of like training and, you know, all the, all the right things that you have to do to make sure, you know, people understand, you know, what, the, where the regulatory risk is and, and how to operate well as a company. But I would say the transparency with regulators and the automation that has been sort of our unique take on managing regulatory risk. Any advice for other founders about when and how to engage with the regulators like that? Yeah. I mean, I think our take, we've had a positive engagement, a positive experience engaging early and transparently you know, I think regulator, regulators, are, you know, are there to protect consumers. If your interests are aligned, they're generally aligned on wanting to enable innovation that will help consumers. So I think I would recommend that type of path of being really transparent and sort of being able to build into your products some of the controls and things that would be necessary later. 
as opposed to building something completely in stealth mode and just kind of hoping that the regulation will catch up, particularly if you're working with kind of a novel technology that is just going to take people some time to get used to. Now, you mentioned early on you talked with the regulators. I'd like to take you back to those early days and talk about the founding story a bit more. In particular, how did you choose your co-founders? I would love to say there was like a thorough process here, but the reality is we got very, very, very lucky. And so I met Dave, our co-founder and CEO at Google. And you know, he had started the Google apps for enterprise business. He was running a couple of thousand person organization. I had really no, and I was pretty early in my career. So I had no like real reason to interact with him, but I have a habit of raising my hand before I'm ready, if you will, to borrow a term from Sheryl Sandberg, who was one of my first managers at Google. And so I had volunteered for this kind of really gnarly project across Google where we were having all these outages on our products and we had kind of no game plan for managing them. And so I dove in to solve that problem and that allowed me to kind of intersect with Dave because he was running the enterprise business. They were suffering the most from these outages. So we got an opportunity to work together. So later when he started to think about this problem of access to credit and you know why is it so limiting? Why hasn't there been a ton of innovation here? He brought me into the conversation and I had done startups before Google I thought I was like, these are really hard. They're not as glamorous as they sound. I'm good. I'll retire from Google. But when he started to talk to me about this idea of, you know, access to credit and how it can be really helped with the technologies we were using at Google, it completely resonated with me because I am someone who had to, you know, rely on access to credit all throughout my life. I really believe access to credit is access to opportunity. I think it's really limited as it is today. And so, I sort of went from, I'm going to retire at Google to, I can't not do this like very, very quickly. It was definitely one of those things that started to keep me up at night. And then the, our original iteration of this idea was slightly different. And so there were very few people thinking about kind of access to credit and expanding access to credit in this sort of unique way we were thinking about it. So we ran into Paul kind of accidentally, because there was maybe five people across the US that were thinking about this problem this way. And we were both just incredibly impressed with this just completely brilliant human who was interested in the same problem space. So the funny part of the story is, you know, I had, you know, given my notice, quit Google, et cetera. But in the time it took me to, you know, give my two weeks, Paul packed up all these things in New York and moved across the country. And now he actually has like a lower employee number than I do. So that's how we got together. And then we've just been, you know, really lucky that, we had really complementary skill set and have continued to work together now over 10 years. Is it just luck or is there anything else you've done or others can learn for how to have a successful co-founder partnership for so long? I think there's a couple of things that have kept us together as long as we have. Number one is we're all really interested in this problem space. And so I think one of the unique lessons of being a founder for me is I had this idea that like, oh, you know, maybe, you know, you dedicate two to three years to something it's either wild success or failure, but like, turns out there's a really great, big gray area in between. And like, you should really be ready to sign up for a 10 year journey if you're, if, if you're going to found a company. And for us, we, you know, we think access to credit is an incredibly important problem and it's going to take us decades to really fix it. And we're all comfortable kind of dedicating our careers to this 
really vast and important and core problem. So I think that's the first thing is this like real genuine alignment. We all come from different backgrounds, but all of us have this really innate understanding of the importance of credit and how what a key ingredient it is to upward mobility and a lot of important things. So that's that's the first thing is if you're going to pick a co-founder, make sure you pick a problem space that you're going to care about for 10 years and make sure your co-founders care about that space too. Otherwise, you know, there's a lot of hard things that you have to go through to start a company and, and you can lose interest, you know? And then the second piece, and here's, I think you can and should be deliberate about this, but this is about getting lucky and having complementary skill sets. So for us, an early employee described it this way, and I think it really resonates, but Dave is about getting us to go fast. So, you know, he's CEO, he's strategy, he's fundraising, he's, you know, dealing with the, the, the markets now that we're a public company. Um, and he's thinking about like, what is the company we need to be in three to five years and directing us there. And then Paul is our technical co-founder. So he's now our CTO, but he started off by running our data science team, our, then our product team, and now the entire engineering team. And Paul is really about seeking truth. And that's the, the easiest way to summarize how he thinks about the world. And then I'm about bringing everybody along. So historically, I focused on our people and operations functions. Now I'm thinking more about how do we operate com the company at the scale but the three of us have kind of really unique areas of sort of expertise and focus, and we tend to really complement each other. So I would say, you know, finding people that care about the, the problems you care about, trying to make sure that you have complementary and not overlapping skill sets. And then I would say in terms of staying together, I, I do think that there are some good habits you can build as co-founders. Like, for example, we've been doing founder walks since the beginning of time and did them all through COVID. They just they've now turned virtual because Paul moved to Utah. But, you know, having the cadence of like every week we, you know, walk outside and we really talk honestly about all the good, bad and, you know, scary, ugly, whatever things that are happening in the business and really trying to focus on what's most important has been kind of extremely valuable and I think has both kept us all engaged and kept us working in lockstep as we build this company. Those are some great tips. Thank you for that. Mission alignment, different clear roles, mm -hmm. and then making sure you're talking about everything, the good and the bad. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a silly thing to actually call out, but, you know, things get really busy. You're just sprinting. And I think, you know, one of the questions I, I, one of the questions I always ask Dave and Paul in our walks is what are you most worried about? What are you most excited about? And just making sure that we have those discussions and that it's, it's that we're on the same page and that we're, you know, hopefully lined and worrying about the same things or helping each other work through the things that are worrying us most um, has been really helpful. One of the prompts I like is what's the elephant in the room? <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Your early vision of the product was different from where you ended up. And I'm curious if you can share anything about that journey and what that was like. Yeah, absolutely. So I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but so we've always been interested in this question of access to credit, but the original iteration of the idea was an income share agreement, which I guess is a term we technically coined, um, but it was almost like a Kickstarter for people where somebody could go on our platform, sell a portion of their future in income to a group of investors, and then those investors would be you know, aligned and incentivized to support this person in reaching their dreams and they would get paid back in a portion of their income. And it was a really interesting concept. 
And what was somewhat dangerous about it is that it was so intellectually curious to people that in the early days, we got a ton of positive reactions. We got a lot of press. We got some negative reactions too. This was also a controversial idea, but it sort of kept us going on this. You know, maybe if we just tweak this a little bit more or change that a little bit more, we're going to reach this like moment of product market fit and growth. And thankfully, at some point, one of our early investors said something to the point of like, you told us there'd be hordes at the gate. Are there hordes at the gate? And we were like, not yet. And so it ended up, we ended up asking the question, like, is there really a scaled business to be had here? And we realized that there was just a ton of friction in both the borrower and the investor side of the equation trying to launch a completely new asset class in finance. So we actually had this pretty dramatic like pivot moment where we had taken the whole company on a ski trip and we were all kind of like talking about whether or not we should pivot, we should launch a new product, et cetera. And it was like a group of us. It was literally, we had like finished dinner, we turned off the lights, everybody was heading to bed and we were like, I think we should do this. And we we like decided, okay, let's do this. And then we went on this mad sprint over maybe a three months period where we had to rebuild our models, completely rethink our website, all the things. But what was lucky about it is the models we had built to predict someone's future income actually translate quite nicely to something that is more familiar to people like a loan product. And so we were able to reuse a lot of the underlying kind of uh, data science infrastructure to just target at a a more familiar product to people, which was a, a personal loan. And it was pretty shortly after we launched personal loans that we were like, oh, this is what people mean by, by product market fit. Okay, now we understand. And so we probably lost a good year and a half of the company on the original idea but it also brought in this really interesting group of leaders that I'm not sure would have joined a lending platform, if you will. And everybody stayed with us through the pivot. And, um, you know, it ended up, it, you know, being a great journey afterwards. But that was kind of the story of the original duration. And now just, you know, just a more traditional product that people understand, but still using the magic of machine learning and data science to expand access to credit. You make it sound so dramatic. I want to know <laughs> how you made that decision to pivot. I mean, you had all these people, investors, everyone heading in one direction. And while you could use some of the tech, it is a different product and it's a different direction. As you say, some people may not have joined for it. So what were the signs that you should and then the reasons you did it and then how did it actually break through to make that change? Yeah, I mean, the signs of how it wasn't working was that we were just seeing a lot of friction in scaling our income share product because all the borrowers, you know, imagine themselves to be, you know, the next Mark Zuckerberg and how will this work when, you know, that happens, et cetera. And all the investors had a lot of questions like how will this get treated for tax purposes and things like this? And the, you know, we didn't have the answers because IRS is not quick to give you those kinds of answers. So while we were getting all this sort of external validation and in the form of like press, the reality is that business was really not growing very quickly. And we definitely felt ourselves at risk of just becoming irrelevant as a, you know, a venture backed startup. So we definitely started to ask the questions then. And then I think it was actually Paul had applied for a loan on one of the existing platforms and got a really terrible rate. And meanwhile, Paul was you know, an exceptionally capable individual who was part of the Peter Thiel's like 20 under 20 program. Paul's 
our, uh, you know, co-founder and, you know, was already like making a salary at Upstart, et cetera. So, you know, he was a terrific credit risk and we were like, huh, are there, are, are the traditional lending platforms also overlooking a type of borrower that we were trying to serve in these sort of income share agreements? And so it became, you know, we had a lot of conversations as a leadership team, we did some research, but it kind of became obvious that, you know, trying to, you know, pivot into something that was adjacent to, and still, again, trying to solve the the same problem, which is using machine learning, data science, you know, to expand access to credit. It's just a different tool to get at that goal. So it actually didn't feel like such a dramatic departure from what we were doing because the North Star was still kind of the same. It was just the tool that we were using was different. So that's how we made the decision. And then once we kind of made the decision, you know, my job's to bring others along. So it was like pretty quickly that we got the rest of the company on board. We were actually able to have the conversation, the debates and conversations because as a whole company, because we were still very small. And, you know, I think ultimately people want to be on a winning team. So, you know, if you're still solving the same problem, the tool is different, but now you're seeing a lot more traction that becomes you know, a self-reinforcing mechanism. And I would say since then, we've still been able to attract for that same talent who just really cares about this problem of access to credit and have, despite the fact of not being, you know, some crazy income share agreement type of solution. Yeah, maybe crazy isn't good. If it's too new, too innovative, yeah. it's hard for people to absorb it into day-to-day business. Exactly. Exactly. As you've grown the company and it's scaled a lot, what have you done to scale yourself? I would say, first of all, I'm someone who really likes to learn from other people. And I'm pretty unabashed about admitting that I don't know something, asking for help, asking for advice, et cetera. So all throughout my career, I've just kind of collected experts in sort of different areas of the business. And so I rely pretty heavily on my sort of external board of directors to think about like, okay, I'm I'm having this scaling challenge. We're having this type of a problem. We're trying to do X, Y, Z. Um, how would you approach that? And so I would say I probably utilize that more than anything. And then the second component is you know, they tell you this as a best practice, it's harder to do than it is to say, but really at every step of the journey, hire people that are better than you are, which requires both, you know, being being able to win over talent like that and also being willing to move out of the way, which is hard to do as a founder. You know, you've done, I, I did everything, including putting 12 cent deposits manually into people's bank accounts and then taking them out manually. So, because that's what it took to build the business, right? In the, in the early days. So it's hard to give things up as a founder, but really finding people that are better than you are and then getting out of their way and letting them like spread their wings and take on bigger and bigger challenges is another really big and important component of scaling yourself. And then there's, of course, like the supplementary, like go to conferences, do the reading, listen to podcasts, you know, do the things that feed your mind and inspire you and learn from other founders, other companies that have had complicated journeys. But I would say my path has been kind of in that order. Mentors, then hiring great people, then, you know, doing the diligence and the reading and things like this. That's a great roadmap for people. Thanks for laying that out so clearly. You've talked about learning along the way. I'm also curious, what 
did you learn or what experiences did you have before you started the business that looking back on it, you're thinking, wow, I'm so glad I did that, knew that. I'm thinking maybe this will help founders before they start. How can they prepare? I would say a lot of the things that I learned that have been helpful are not exactly skills or practices. So there's a category of things like skills and practices that I learned at Google. And because our founding team was a lot of us are ex-Googlers that we've been able to like able to kind of copy and paste onto our business. So things like OKRs, how you manage performance, you know, the TGIFs and ask me anything questions. So there's like, or writing down your values early and, you know, things like this. So there's a category of those things that I learned that I think, you know, can be helpful tools. But what has actually been more valuable and I think helped me prepare for the founder experience is more of the soft skills. So for example, I have a saying that's like, feel the fear and do it anyway. And, you know, that's about like, yeah, there's going to be scary moments where you have no idea how to solve a problem and you have to learn to trust yourself. You have to learn what that feeling feels like and learn to trust yourself to, you know, use every resource at your disposal to solve the problem. There's, you know, the soft sort of skill of fast is better than slow. You know, this was something that was ingrained in us at Google, but you know, this mantra of like launch and iterate, what's the minimum viable product? How do you, you know, get out of the theoretical whiteboarding session and get your product in front of customers so you can increase that learning cycle, you know, really quickly. Just because it doesn't work yet, it doesn't mean it won't work. You know, knowing that everything is going to be at iteration and not getting, not kind of giving up on things before you've, you know, done all the tweaking and all the dials, things like that. One of the things Google, I think, did an exceptionally good job with is really empowering people to problem solve and to see things as a work in progress. So it didn't rely, you didn't have to rely on like leadership or HR or, you know, some subset of, of people within the company to solve problems, really empowering anyone who encounters a problem to solve that problem. So those were some of the things that I think have been most helpful and most applicable. And they're not exactly a thing you can go take a course in, but to the extent that you can expose yourself to those situations, I think that can be really valuable because a big part of being, being a founder is like working hard and not giving up (laughs) as silly as that sound and, you know, facing a whole bunch of crazy problems that you've never seen before. And, you know, using every resources at your disposal to solve them and then like iterating quickly and learning quickly from your mistakes and making change and making changes. So those have been sort of the key learnings that have helped me. Mindsets more than skills, I think you're saying. Yeah, I think that's probably the better frame for him. Yeah, it's more of a mindset than a specific skill. Do you have any other advice for aspiring founders? I would say there's a couple of things. Number one, and I I mentioned this already, but I, I would like to stress it, which is make sure you keep a problem space that you are deeply interested in. If it's startups take longer than you expect. And so making sure that you you select something that makes enough of a difference in the world that it will keep you engaged and going as your business model might change, the environment might change, the technology that you're using might change. A lot of things might change, but having something that really compels you, I think is really, really critical. And I see founders make some mistake of like riding a current trend or solving a really niche problem, thinking they're going to be able to sell their company to this acquirer in a couple of years and like flip a company. Like I I think that just 
A is a less interesting way to spend your life and B tends to not work out as well. So I would say that. And then the second piece is follow the trend lines in technology and try to ride a particular wave. So we've got a couple of ways, waves going right now. We've, you know, still have the wave, the web three wave. We've got the, obviously the AI wave. When I was at Google, we were kind of riding the cloud wave and the mobile wave, but sort of these technological waves tend to lift all boats. So, you know, if you're, if you find an interesting problem space, I would recommend also finding like which technology wave, you know, inspires you, compels you so that you can, you can also be kind of part of that trend. So you want to catch a wave so that you're getting that support, but not grabbing onto a space just because things are moving. Like you want to truly care about the problem and harness the wave to steer it in the direction you care about. Right. Versus like seeing like, oh, there's like a, like a quick win in this, you know, space that doesn't necessarily interest me, but I see like an arbitrage opportunity. So I'm going to grab it real quick. Cause I think the reality is like, there's not that much real quick grabbing. And if the space doesn't interest you and you're, you know, you're thinking you're going to be in and out, the technology doesn't inspire you. It's, it's not going to last. As you think back over what's been the biggest challenge. So I think in terms of upstart specifically, we've been through, you know, obviously several economic cycles in our lifetime as a company. And the first time we went through it, it was kind of a real shock to the system. It happened back in 2016. And, you know, marketplace lending was like this big thing. And everybody thought fintechs were going to be amazing. And then there was some bad stuff that happened in the beginning of 2016 that put a real cloud over the industry. And all of a sudden, you know, your growth plans were not going to be your growth plans. You were not going to get to launch all the things you wanted to launch. And it was kind of my first time going through that type of a cycle in my career. But the lessons we learned in that moment was really figuring out like, what are the big things you can change in your business that are going to position you in a much better way for, you know, the next growth cycle. So in that specific instance, we focused on getting really good at our unit economics and really figuring out how to, which required actually a ton of automation. And so when we came out, we were able to go on like a really big growth spurt. And then, you know, there was another one of these during COVID. We're going through another one now. But now that I sort of have this mental playbook, I'm like, oh, you know, I know what we do in these moments. In these moments, you retool, you fix all the inefficiencies that you sort of miss when you're going through a particularly big growth spurt as a company. So you get a chance to, you know, make sure your talent is great and that it's working on the right problems. You make sure you automate and make things more efficient. We're doing a lot of investment in our kind of future products. And we talk about it as like lining up the planes on the runway. So then when, you know, you're in big growth spurt mode, you're just in much, much better shape to do that. And now when I see this mo these moments, I see them more as like a real opportunity. And I think when you're building a company for the long, long term, you really benefit for the from the periods where you know everything is going your way and you're going through a growth spurt. And you also really benefit from these periods of you know economic downturns where things aren't maybe moving as quickly as you would like them to to really you know retool and fine tune to make sure you know when you're growing again you're operating in the best way possible. Wow, how optimistic! I love it. <laughs> how can every circumstance be an ally to improve the company? So, yeah, in every circumstance, there's an opportunity to improve.
And one of the thing, one of the lines I love that was given to me by one of my first managers is every opportunity is a chance to prove how good you are. And so that's true of periods of growth, period of downturn, when things are going well, when things are not going well, it's an opportunity to prove yourself. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. I really appreciate you coming on. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.